Welcome to The Grizzly Beat, a podcast of Grizzly Times and Louisa Wilcox, where we interview scientific experts, managers, Native Americans, writers, and others to share their knowledge, perspectives, and experience. This comes at a time of enormous interest in the grizzly bear's future as the government proposes to remove federal protections and citizens are asking important questions. We hope the information shared here will help listeners shape their own answers. Welcome to Grizzly Times Podcast. My name is Louisa Wilcox, and I'm here today with Nick Arriva with the Humane Society of the United States. Nick is an attorney who specializes in the environment and animal welfare. And right now, Nick is taking on an important case challenging the premature removal of federal endangered species protections for Yellowstone grizzly bears, or delisting. Nick is a writer and a poet in whatever spare time he has that's not consumed by Trump's anti-environmental crusade. So welcome, Nick. Thanks, Louisa. It's great to be here. Before talking about grizzly delisting, I wanted to ask you about your early years. So growing up outside Chicago, you decided at a fairly young age to be a vegan and still are. What prompted you to make that choice? Yeah, sure. Well, I think there were a couple of things, um, sort of one kind of emotional and the other more intellectual, I would say. Uh, the first, when I was maybe nine or so, I was on my way home driving with my dad back from my grandparents' house and my that side of the family lives up in rural southwestern Wisconsin, and we were on some county road. Um, it was it was winter, but it, it wasn't snowing, and the sky was clear. And and there were these sort of white flakes kind of falling onto the windshield of the car, and I was confused at first. I thought it was snowing from a, a clear sky, but then I looked a little closer and realized that. Um, they were actually feathers, uh, and there was a, oh. a huge flatbed truck uh, in front of us on this road that was carrying a, probably a 1,000 broiler chickens in, in battery cages exposed to the elements on a really cold Wisconsin day, um, just flying down the highway with feathers flying off. And I, you know, I, I didn't really understand what, um, you know, CAFOs were or how the industrial mm-hmm. agriculture system operated at that time, but that was a disturbing, you know, visceral moment for me, and I, I feel like that knocked something a little bit loose. <laughs> um, a couple of years later then, I was in high school, and I was interested in, you know, pretentious, you know, quasi-intellectual adolescent boy things. I was reading Camus and reading a little basic philosophy, and I picked up Peter Singer's Animal Liberation, and that book just, you know, as is the case for a lot of people, I think, it it really opened my eyes. Um, And I read it cover to cover in a weekend, I think, and kind of concluded that, you know, there's there's really (laughs) no way for me to consider myself an ethical person or to, you know, kind of live with myself if I don't try to act on my principles here. Um, and and then I went vegan. And, you know, it was difficult in the Midwest, especially at first um, in the 90s. You know, we didn't have the excellent vegan options that exist today. Um, you know, non-dairy cheese was still this disgusting orange plasticky substance, but mm. uh, things have come a long way, I think, and it's um, 
it's really not a problem anymore. Even, you know, traveling in the Rockies and through rural parts of the country, I, I never have too much trouble. So before you settled on the law, Nick, you started a career in publishing, focused on ecology as well as poetry. How has your love of poetry influenced your approach to animal protection and, more recently, your work in the law? I don't think there's, you know, like a direct connection. I'm, I've, I've never been, you know, like a romantic or, like, deeply interested in, you know, like the American transcendentalists and that sort of school of, of literature that sort of deifies nature in, in a certain way. I mean, I, I like it and respect it, but it's not what I really feel. I, I think at a, at a base level what it is is it just sort of cultivates a, a certain sensitivity, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, a, a kind of appreciation for non-instrumental value in things, which to me naturally leads one to, you know, appreciating other forms of life, um, whether they be, you know, animals or just broader ecosystems. Uh, it kind of broadens your perspective out from the utilitarian demands of human civilization a little bit. Um, as far as the law is concerned, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I mm. think that, that poetry and legal writing are about as far apart as any two forms of writing can, can possibly be. Um, <laughs> and it's actually, it's been a difficult transition, I think. I mean, as, as you know, you've read a lot of legal materials over the years, and uh, it's like generally very bad writing, <laughs> very mm -hmm. uh, dull writing. They sort of in law school do their best to kind of beat the sense of style out of you um, and train you to write in these, you know, formulaic um, paragraphs. And, you know, I, I think some of that is necessary. I think you have to be linear and you have to be clear and concise. Um, but I find that, you know, I enjoy the work of legal drafting and I think judges and other attorneys uh, appreciate reading legal materials that still have a voice. I think it's important, you know, if you read like the best Supreme Court advocates, for instance, something that they all have in common, whether they're on the right or the left, is that they, they don't really write like other kind of line attorneys do. There is more of a voice. There's a sense of narrative that kind of flows through. Um, and, and so I, I guess that's the if you can take some seed away from, you know, literature and, and incorporate it into legal practice, it's got to be that. Mm, interesting. So, Nick, you've been watching wildlife for many years now, um, but more recently you've taken an interest in mushrooms. How did you get interested in mushrooms, and what's it like being a mycologist in the urban heart of Washington? I got interested. It was a couple of years ago I was on a camping trip out in the George Washington National Forest, a couple hours west of here, and I was on a hike with a couple of my friends and a couple of dogs, and we, I think it was the day after a rain in the late summer, and we came upon this sort of prairie area that had what had to have been probably 100 pounds of these beautiful kind of apricot-colored mushrooms, um, oh. and I was certain they were chanterelles. And at that point, I was not, you know, a mushroom hunter at all. I had not read any texts. I, I could not tell you what a, you know, what a spore print was or the difference between an amanita and an agaricus. But, um, 
you know, as a vegetarian and a vegan, I definitely ate a lot of mushrooms in my time. Mm-hmm. Um, I lived through the 1990s when, you know, portobellos were pretty much all I could eat at any restaurant. And, and I was pretty sure these were chanterelles and that we had just encountered, you know, thousands of dollars worth of premium, high-quality mushrooms out in the wilderness that, you know, could, could feed us well through, through the winter. Um, but, you know, not knowing enough about it and being cautious and not wanting to, you know, poison my entire camping group. I did not pick them, did not try to cook them. But then I went and, you know, got a couple of books from the library and read up um, so that this wouldn't happen again. And I've since, you know, gotten really into the, the hobby. I think it's a great way to, um, you know, get out into nature with kind of a, a focus and a sense of purpose. And I think it forces you to pay attention to, you know, forms of life that are maybe a little less sexy (laughs) that aren't at eye level, you know. Um, There's like an incredible diversity of of life, uh, you know, underneath the leaves um, and along the roots of trees that if you aren't looking for it, you don't really notice. But once you you start, it's it's just this entire sort of alien uh, kingdom of life that has been right there all along. In D.C., it's a surprisingly good place for it, actually. Um, Interesting. There's a, there's a rich substrate of bullshit here, um, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> and, so, and so the mushrooms right. grow very well. Um, uh, but, no, it, in seriousness, there are, there are really good, you know, urban parks around here, and um, they're not too picked over, and it's, it's very possible to find a huge diversity of, of mushrooms and meet other people that are doing the same thing while you're out. That's great. So, Nick, you, you went to law school at Yale, and uh, there you got involved in uh, the law clinic and took on a case involving international whaling, which was kind of an entree to work on animal rights issues. What lessons did you learn that you've been able to apply to your ongoing work with the Humane Society? Well, I wish I could say that I learned Icelandic because <laughs> it would have been really helpful deciphering some of those corporate and legal documents that we had to work on in that case. It was, a, it was sort of an investigation and potential sort of movement for sanctions against uh, this Icelandic fishing conglomerate that is one of the few companies in the world that still engages in commercial whaling. Um, but, you know, I think the main thing I took away from that, and I think it's a lesson that, you know, lawyers that are involved in movements in general um, you know, should be aware of and, and, you know, will learn quickly if they're not, is that litigation is certainly a powerful tool sometimes, but it's not the only tool in the toolbox. Um, that, mm-hmm. you know, legal skills and legal training can enable you to support campaigns and support activists and kind of push the ball forward um, using other mechanisms. And, like, whether that is, you know, uh, non-binding kind of international arbitration bodies like we were working with in this case, or whether that is, you know, shareholder pressure um, or, you know, petitions to rulemaking agencies, things like that, that, you know, you're not taking someone to court, um, but you are still, you know, amplifying the voices and the, and the power of the, of the grassroots and of the organizations that you're representing. Um, I think litigation has its has you know its moments when it's necessary and when it's very potent, um, but 
the input to output ratio is not always the best, <laughs> let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's important to keep in mind, you know, all of the other things that lawyers can do and can help you do um, when you're kind of working on a campaign. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe the issue of in the international fur trade uh, might be along the lines of uh, how one works outside of litigation. Uh, you've been involved in that and the phenomenon of faux fur. So maybe you can explain what faux fur is and what you're trying to achieve in your work. Yeah, so, you know, obviously fur and the fur trades and fur apparel has been, you know, a traditional focus of the animal welfare, animal protection, animal rights, whatever you want to call it, movement for decades now. Um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a very visible um, form of animal cruelty. It's, you know, I think it, it shocks the conscience a little more than even factory farming does just by virtue of the fact that it's so facially unnecessary um, and also because it has these kind of associations with decadent luxury and, you know, Cruella de Vil type <laughs> villains. Um, yeah, right. And, and I think, you know, sort of like, you know, we're seeing with the, the rise of clean meat and, you know, advanced plant-based proteins now, there have been really remarkable advances in faux fur. Um, it's not just, mm. you know, cheap plastic stuff around the collar of your coat anymore. There are uh, textiles that are being made and used by, you know, really highly regarded designers that kind of mimic the warmth and the feel and the style of fur. And, you know, I think that is part of our campaign that the Humane Society is doing is, is kind of working with um, retailers, working with fashion houses to transition them away from the use of animal fur and, and sort of toward the use of uh, cruelty-free alternatives. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, fur is a particularly important issue to me because it kind of stands at the intersection of, you know, wildlife and, and farmed animals. Um, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, industrial factory farms are one of the most, you know, horrifying creations of human civilization and, and the idea of taking that level of confinement and cruelty and subjecting animals like foxes or, or mink that are, you know, just as capable of suffering as pigs and chickens and cows are, but on top of that are fundamentally wild animals that whose instincts are being, you know, repressed to a degree that is driving them insane um, in those conditions is is just reprehensible um, and for for luxury fashion. Um, And so we've had a lot of success on these campaigns recently. Uh, In the past year, we've gotten commitments from uh, Prada and from Armani and from Michael Kors, sort of huge global brands, to phase fur out of their entire lines by uh, wow. day certain. And so that's been tremendous. I think the tide is really pushing back. That's great. On a different note, you've also taken on predator management in New Mexico, including uh, trapping of mountain lions. Um, you've also worked to protect uh, very endangered Mexican wolves. And these have confronted you with the role of hunters in state wildlife management. Why do you think hunters pose such a serious threat to the protection of predators? So it's an interesting question because, you know, predators, at least mountain lions and uh, most predators, are not typically considered 
the trophy game species. When you think of big game, you know, it's, it's elk or it's deer, um, and it's not a mountain lion. Uh, and so, you know, on its face, it, it seems like there shouldn't be an obvious conflict. Um, but what we're seeing in New Mexico, what we've seen in Colorado and Alaska are these kind of state-sanctioned, euphemistically titled predator control programs where there are kind of deliberate efforts to what they would say manage, I would say, you know, eradicate or decimate natural predator populations in an attempt to artificially inflate the availability of prey species that those animals would otherwise prey upon. And those are the trophy game animals. And so I think where the conflict comes from most directly is that big game hunters are in competition with predators uh, to kill the same game species. And, you know, predators uh, are good at it and mm-hmm. have evolved to, to do it for a much longer time than hunters have been hunting. And so, um, you know, in order to maintain enough of a supply of, of trophy game species, you have hunters in conjunction with state wildlife agencies kind of deliberately culling uh, coyotes and mountain lions, wolves, uh, bears even um, in, in Alaska. And uh, that is not sound wildlife management. It's not driven by, you know, an, a sort of scientific or ecological uh, approach, it is really just the sort of venal, naked interest of, you know, the hunters in hunting and in the, the state agency and maintaining those relationships, acquiring additional income through the sales of tags. Um, it's a bad system. And what is particularly difficult about it, I think, is the politics around state wildlife management, especially in mm-hmm. Western states. Um, Mm -hmm. it's difficult to break into uh, if you are, you know, a conservation organization or if you are just an individual citizen who is strongly invested in, you know, non-consumptive use of wildlife or natural resources. And a lot of that is because, you know, fish and game commissions, which are appointed by the governor and not elected and therefore not accountable to the broader public, are kind of standing at the highest level of decision-making in these states. But I think also it's um, where the money's coming from. I think it's kind of an underappreciated fact that more than half of, of most state game agency budgets um, is actually coming through the federal government, through the Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, because of this statute called the Pittman-Robertson Act that creates a an excise tax on the sale of all firearms and ammunition and then distributes that on sort of a pro rata basis to the 50 states for what, what they say is wildlife management and restoration, but what in, in practice is, is you know, uh, operating <laughs> these state game agencies for the benefit of consumptive users. And because the source of that funding is tied to firearm sales and ammunition sales, there is kind of this built-in obligation or constituency um, that these states, you know, are sort of beholden to, and there's, there's nothing comparable. You know, you have, like, certain conservation plates or something like that, that, but that's just a drop in the bucket, I think, compared to the funding stream that's coming directly from, you know, uh, 
hunters and sports people. And mm-hmm. so I think you can, you know, argue all you want and show up at meetings and present incredibly detailed and, you know, well thought out positions, but um, I think it's going to be very difficult to fight against that just naked financial interests um, until that law changes or until there's another source of sustainable funding for these state agencies that does not come from uh, hunting. Right, and uh, we're seeing the anti-carnivore sentiment of the states in the Northern Rockies and the hunting community in the Northern Rockies play out on the grizzly bear delisting issue, which you're very involved in representing the Humane Society in a, in a lawsuit again to try to get grizzly bears relisted in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about that case and what uh, you're doing to um, raise uh, central concerns in court. Yeah, so I'm sure your listeners and your readers are, you know, fairly aware of the the sort of saga over the past couple of years since the proposal to remove threatened status from Yellowstone grizzlies was came out in early 2016 through June of last year when it was finalized. Um, and I am representing the Humane Society, which is one of a, a, a large kind of coalition of tribal conservation and animal protection groups that are all challenging this delisting rule. I think there are a lot of serious flaws um, in both just the delisting, but also the way that they approach the delisting. And the lawsuit, you know, the lawsuit raises a lot of claims that I think are all very strong and viable. Um, I think there are sort of three categories, I guess. The first is um, their kind of misuse of what's called the distinct population segment portion of the Endangered Species Act, which is a tool that allows the Fish and Wildlife Service to kind of define a subspecies level uh, population of animals as its own kind of discrete unit for the purposes of listing or or delisting. Um, And so this is what allows them to kind of carve a circle around Yellowstone and say, this is the Yellowstone population. We're going to remove protections here, but leave it, at least for now, you know, in, in the rest of, you know, the, the, the glacier ecosystem or the northern Cascades. Um, and I think there, and we can talk about this more later on, I think. I don't want to get too into the legal nitty-gritty on that right now, but okay. I think there are major legal problems with the way that they've invoked that provision. Um, I think the second category is uh, state management and its inadequacy in a world where there are no federal protections. Um, So, Mm -hmm. you know, now that grizzly bears in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem are no longer listed as threatened, uh, they are under the management of the respective Yellowstone states, Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming, um, except obviously in, you know, in the parks. And, uh, (laughs) <laughs> to put it mildly, the protections that the states are offering these animals under their laws and regulations uh, are not anywhere near what existed before and are you know, woefully inadequate to even ensure a stable population, um, let alone avoid a, a crash that will you know, potentially necessitate an emergency action of some kind to return these animals to uh, the threatened species list before it's too late. Um, 
And I think, you know, the service knew that the states were doing a pretty poor job throughout the entire process and kind of looked the other way um, while the states went through regulatory processes that, you know, were legally and substantively just uh, pretty, pretty poor. Um, the most important component of which, of course, is the, the plan to allow trophy hunting, um, in, certainly in Wyoming and likely in the other two states as well. Um, and then the last kind of category of legal arguments that, that are on the table here are of a more scientific nature, and these are about the service's failure to account for the ongoing threats to the survival of this population. Um, so as, as you know much better than I do, uh, during the last attempt to delist this population of grizzly bears, uh, federal courts in the District of Montana and then the Ninth Circuit overturned that decision um, on the basis of, most relevantly, the, the, the service's failure to account for the precipitous loss in whitebark pine availability, which is a staple food source for grizzly bears in this ecosystem. And this time around, you know, they've jumped through a lot of hoops um, to sort of paper over that mistake in an attempt to, you know, placate the Ninth Circuit's holding um, but I think in doing so, they, they missed a lot of the sort of secondary implications of the loss of that food source. And so even though, you know, they say, for instance, in the final rule that, well, grizzly bears have been able to disperse further outward where they're, you know, shifting their diet to a higher proportion of meat, let's say, um, they don't then consider the implications of that outward dispersal and that increasing reliance on other food sources for, you know, uh, human conflict um, because they are, you know, moving further out from the primary conservation area of the park in order to obtain these other food sources. And, and so I think the service took one step but did not take the next step, I think, which would have, you know, shown that uh, the mere fact that they, you know, are omnivores and can shift to other food sources doesn't mean that the fact that they're doing so means they're sort of secure in the long term. Right, and the, there's consequences to a heavy meat diet, which uh, we're seeing with more complex affairs, um, you know, come in on hunter-killed elk and, uh, and livestock. So it's not without a price. Absolutely. Um, and there are other factors here as well. I mean, you know, as you've done a really good job documenting, you know, that there's been record levels of both overall and human cause mortality um, for the last two years. Uh, and sort of that trend was sort of disturbingly absent from the services analysis uh, in the delisting rule. It kind of arbitrarily cut off its, its time frame at 2014, which you know, conveniently for them, um, allowed them to uh, ignore the difficult fact that uh, there are more bears dying every year. And certainly Wyoming plans to add to that mortality with their proposed hunt we just heard this week that yeah, just, Wyoming just is going week. to, yeah. So what's, uh, what's the Humane Society, what are you going to do about it? Well, I, I think that you know, we're in litigation now, and the mm -hmm. proposed hunt would not begin until the fall of 2018 at the earliest. And so I think ideally um, 
the lawsuit will succeed quickly and mm -hmm. the rule will be vacated and grizzly bears in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem will be returned to the federal list of threatened species such that that season uh, will never be able to start. Uh, of course, you know, litigation, as you know, can operate on unpredictable timetables and there are delays built into things and sometimes the government shuts down and DOJ is no longer able to, uh, you know, file its briefs in time and so, that, you know, there are questions about how quickly things will proceed, um, but, you know, should we come to a point where, you know, and I'm sorry for using this, uh, but, you know, uh, where we're staring down the barrel of that hunting season, um, hmm. I think there are certain, you know, emergency measures that, that may need to be taken in order to, to prevent that from happening. Well, we wish you the best of luck with that, and, uh, yeah, grizzly bears very much need it, um, the additional protections again, so... But the grizzly bear delisting issue has raised uh, other issues with the Endangered Species Act, uh, which has come under increasing fire these days in this fiercely anti-environmental Congress and administration. Uh, maybe you can share some of your concerns about the Endangered Species Act itself and perhaps what some of the listeners can do to protect the bill. Absolutely. Well, so I think at the legislative level, what we're seeing now is uh, Congress sort of making it their business to intervene in listing and delisting decisions on a species-by-species -species level through legislation, um, often through appropriations writers even, that not even standalone bills, but just sneaky little two-sentence writers that are snuck in uh, without, you know, opportunity for real full debate and consideration. And, I mean, it, it's likely within Congress's power to do this, of course, but uh, I think, you know, they're not doing it on grounds that are based on the best available science. It is entirely contrary to the, to the spirit of the ESA, which, you know, delegates this authority to the Secretary of the Interior so that expert scientists, expert biologists can m study and make determinations about what needs to be done. And I, I think it's just a, it's a terrible precedent to set when, um, you know, politics starts to interfere in what n needs to be a scientific decision-making process. Um, but I think also what we're seeing is, and this is, you know, I think part of the broader kind of deregulatory frenzy of this administration um, is just a view that, you know, the ESA and listing in, in general is, is viewed as kind of a regulatory hurdle, that it's, that it's an impediment to energy development and to other kind of consumptive or extractive uses of, of federal lands, and that, uh, you know, those roadblocks need to be cleared in order to uh, generate more wealth or otherwise kind of exploit the, the resources that, that exist. Um, and... You know, this is an area that I think is really threatening. You know, this administration, blessedly, I guess, you know, hasn't had a ton of success pushing new affirmative legislation through. But one area where, you know, there has been a lot of activity and a lot of things have been done is, is in the repeal of regulations or the kind of stalling out of <clears throat> the issuance of new, important new regulations. And, and so that's a place where the ESA um, is, I think, under attack right now as well. 
Mm-hmm. And it's a difficult situation, I think, because it's sort of like a classic collective action problem, I guess, where you know the benefits of the ESA accrue widely to you know all of society, all of the world, really. Um, mm-hmm. And you know the number of people that are that are touched and benefited by the by the protections that are afforded endangered species just vastly outnumbers, um, you know, the, the sort of costs or the benefit to people that, that would accumulate if ESA protections were cut. Um, but because, you know, it's such a diffuse set of beneficiaries that really care about this issue and because the people that want ESA regulations to be slashed, want species to be delisted legislatively, are you know very concentrated in particular industries with very clear profit motives it's easier for them to organize it's easier for them to sort of speak with a unified voice and you know that's the challenge i think of uh you know for the citizens and for the organizations that that want to stand up and defend the esa is to uh not take it for granted, <laughs> to not assume that mm-hmm. someone else is kind of watching out for these issues, even though there are a lot of great organizations doing great work. But I think, you know, our voices need to be as loud and as unified as the voices on the other side. And so, you know, I think uh, making sure that you correspond with or call your legislators and make sure they know, like, that you value the ESA and do not want to see it interfered with, um, make sure that you, you know, join, support, donate to one of the many organizations that are, you know, doing the, the difficult work of, you know, both, uh, you know, doing the organizing on the ground, but also fighting in, in Congress and at the regulatory agencies to make sure the ESA doesn't get dismantled by this administration. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Nick, you mentioned earlier uh, the work of author-philosopher Peter Singer and his role perhaps in you uh, rethinking your relationship with eating meat. Um, But Singer was really calling for a different kind of relationship with animals. Um, Maybe you can talk about what that might look to you. So I have to admit that I've, you know, since since my high school days, my thinking has evolved a little bit. Um, And I I mean, I think that Peter Singer, you know, makes a, a, a really compelling argument from kind of within the internal logic of utilitarianism, let's say. Um, but I, I don't find that to be like a, a totally satisfactory uh, way to account for the value of animals or the value of non-human life in general. Um, you know, I, I think from his point of view, the reduction or avoidance of, of suffering is kind of the, the end goal, um, which I think, you know, lines up very well with veganism and with the, you know, urgent need to stop factory farming um, and the, you know, unimaginable quantity of, of animals that are, are suffering due to industrial agriculture every day. Um, but where I, I don't think that kind of frame lines up very well is, for instance, in, in, the, in, the, in the context of wildlife. Um, I think mm. that there is there are there are kind of questions about intrinsic value and about value that goes beyond you know an individual 
suffering or individual pleasure that are precious and that society, you know, I mean, we enacted the ESA, we care about biodiversity, and those are, those are values that don't translate that cleanly into utilitarian terms, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. But, and simply for wildlife, you know, the idea of existence values, that they're valuable just to exist on the landscape um, in a non-utilitarian way, that's become a very important argument, I think, for those who want to protect wild creatures. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's important to, to make all the arguments at your disposal. You know, I, I, certainly there's a powerful and I think the most powerful case for endangered species protection and for just conservation generally is one that appeals to that sense of intrinsic value and that that sense of kind of like wonder and and preservation of of something that is um, just kind of fundamentally significant. But, you know, that is not persuasive to some people. (laughs) Um, And and I, I think there are other, you know, more utilitarian or more economic benefits as well that, that are associated with, um, you know, the conservation of species and ecosystems. And, you know, I, I mean, to talk about Yellowstone grizzly bears, for instance, right, like the, the sort of value of uh, their presence to the local economy, I think, is, is um, incredibly significant. And in a world where they were not there, where, you know, you could not have photographers and, and guides and, and tourists kind of coming to Yellowstone to have the opportunity to view um, these animals, uh, it would, I think it would be fairly devastating to uh, the local economy. And um, so, you know, that's also true. And I, I think uh, a combination of, of both the, the more sort of, not cynical, but the more utilitarian arguments and, and the, the more uh, deontological ones is an important part of a, a well-balanced philosophical diet when you're dealing with these issues. Right. So, Nick, you're in court every day and uh, fighting for for wild creatures, or, or actually not wild creatures, just creatures generally. Are you optimistic that we as a society are going to develop a different kind of relationship with, with animals? I see signs that are encouraging. Um, sometimes I have to squint a little bit, but um, I think there are developments that are that are really great. Um, I mean, we we just talked about the movement away from the use of fur. Um, right. I think there is uh, a tremendous change coming with also, like we discussed before, you know, the the sort of clean clean meat. Um, and sort of growing acceptance of uh, food sources that, you know, do not require cruelty to produce, but that also are, like, delicious things that you would actually want to eat. <laughs> um, and I, mm-hmm. I think there is kind of a lot of, you know, entrepreneurship being married with activism in, in a way that's uh, driving a lot of change right now and that I'm encouraged by. That's great. Well, thank you, Nick. Uh, Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Nick Arrivo with Humane Society of the United States. He's an attorney uh, representing the grizzly bear in court and its protection. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been great.